0: If you have your Bible with you, open to 1 Samuel chapter 27. This evening will be in 1 Samuel 27. So, have you ever been in a trial? Yeah, right? If you walk with the Lord for any length of time, you've been in a difficult situation. You've been in a time of testing, and you've been certainly in a time of trial. One of the things that I think is the hardest part of a trial is when they're long a lengthy trial. You see, we can kind of get through anything for a week or two, right? It's not so bad. But what about those trials that seem to just carry on? They just keep going. They just seems to be no end. You know, the week or two, the day or two, a time of temptation, a moment of this, a moment of that. That's one thing. But what about those trials? They just won't end. You ever come to the place where you just think that it's just never going to end? It becomes such a part of your life that that's just what you think life is. There's no other other alternative. That's just it. This is just who I am. This is is where I'm at. Well, David has been enduring a trial at this point for about 12 to 13 years. Think about that. 12 to 13 years, he has been living in the wilderness on the run from King Saul. Oh, he has a promise of God that he's holding on to, the promise that one day he will be king over Israel. But his life, says different the things that he sees the circumstances around or surrounding him he sees desolation he sees living in caves he sees attempts murder attempts on his life as he looks around he's got to think God what's going on well last week we saw David confront King Saul remember what happened King Saul was on the run moving towards David and David goes out and he confronts King Saul and he takes one of his servants with him and when he gets down into the camp, what does he find? Only the Lord has put everybody to sleep. Everybody is sound asleep. He walks over to right where King Saul's sleeping. King Saul's laying on the ground and he can look right over at him. Next to King Saul is his his sword stuck in the ground, his water jug. And remember David's servant wanted to kill King Saul, wanted to wipe him out right there wanted to say, let's just, I can just, just one, one swipe of the sword and I can, I can take this trial away from you, David, because King Saul was the cause of his trial. Remember King Saul is the one he's supposed to replace as being King David with just one swipe. I can take it away. I can make it all end. And David said, no, I will not stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed David said I'm not going to stretch out my hand against the man that God has anointed king over Israel. My trial will endure. I'm not going to stand up and make it end. What would you do to end your trial? How quickly would how quick would you be to kill that thing? Wipe out that person. Destroy that issue whatever it is just to get out of the trial. David says I'm not going to end it. I'm going to let it continue. Remember what he does, he takes Saul's sword, he takes his water jug and he walks off into a great distance and he stands on a hill a ways off and he calls out to Abner, supposed to be Saul's bodyguard. He calls out, good job protecting the king. And I'm paraphrasing here, kind of giving him a hard time. And he holds up this king's sword, he holds up the king's water jug and King Saul recognizes David. And remember King Saul realizes that once again, David had a chance to kill him and to take his life. And King Saul blesses David and he goes on back to the palace and David goes on back to where? Right back to wandering in the wilderness, right back to living in caves, right back to having these 600 men, remember who they were, the ones that were in debt, the ones that no one wanted, right back to having them follow him. And I can't help but wonder how often David just scratched his head and say, Lord, what is going on? I can't even see this coming to fruition. There's no way that I, I... have a promise from you, God. I know that I'm going to be king of Israel because your word is true. But I don't even see a way for this to be possible right now. It's impossible, God. I'm tired. I'm worn out. I can't take it anymore. I've had it. I'm throwing in the towel. I'm giving up. Look what David does as we pick up in chapter 27, verse 1. And David said this in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So, I'll, so I shall escape out of his hand. Then David arose and he went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So David dwelt with the Kish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahiahim and the Jezreelites, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told to Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he thought him, so he sought him, no more. Now, did you catch what happened? David abandoned, moved out of the land of Judah moved away from the people of God, and where did he go? He went to the enemy's camp. He went to the enemy's camp. He moved away from the people of God, and he moved in with the enemy. And he took his 600 men with him, he took his wives with him, and all of the men with him took them. To All the men that were with him took their wives as well. It's an interesting passage, and I think there's something in there that we need to focus on tonight. Notice it says in the very beginning, and David said... In his heart. David said in his heart. David said in his heart. This is the thing that David told himself. He didn't write it in a psalm. He didn't tell his friends or the people that were with him. He's talking to himself here. He says in his heart. These are the things that he's convinced himself of. I've convinced myself of this. These are the things that he's telling it. The phrase in his heart, it literally means David talked to himself means he's having a conversation with himself. He's he's negotiating with himself. He's trying to figure out what to do with himself. What does he he tell himself? Well, number one, he says, I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. I'm going to die by the hand of Saul. I'm tired of running. I've had it. Number two, he tells himself, there's nothing better for me. There's nothing better for me than to speedily escape the land of the Philistines than Saul will seek me no more. He tells himself, I'm going to perish someday by the hand of Saul. Do you see his heart there? Some people think that this is a plan of God, that David's going to then move in with the Philistines and he's going to begin to sort of defeat them from the inside. But I don't see that at all. What I see is a man who is discouraged I see a man who has lost hope. I see a man who's been wandering in the wilderness for 12-plus years, and he begins to talk to himself. Listen, when you start talking to yourself and start taking your own advice, you're in trouble. He stopped talking to God. He's not writing a psalm, not writing a prayer. He's not worshiping. He's not giving praise. He's not even remembering what God has done for him. Instead, he talks to himself. He looks at his current situation. He goes, there's no hope there's no hope in my current situation. There's no hope. As a matter of fact, he then begins to rationalize. He says this, there's nothing better for me than to get out of the land of Judah. Think about that for a minute. There's nothing better for me than, who, who called him to the land of Judah in the first place? God did. God moved him back there, told him to go back to Judah in previous chapter. <clears throat> Here, he says, well, there's just nothing better for me. I might as well just go ahead and do this. This just doesn't make any sense. I can't endure this any longer. Besides, I'm, if I stay here, I'm going to die. He literally convinced himself of this. David is speaking words of discouragement that are coming from a heart that is tired of trusting God for his promise because it seems impossible. Let me say that again. He's speaking words of discouragement to himself that are coming from his heart because he's tired of trusting God for the promise that God has given him because when he looks at his situation, it seems impossible. There's just no way. In the time frame, the time frame, 12 years, 13 years. How long are you willing to endure your trial before you go, oh, God, you can't do it. It's just impossible. It won't do it. I'll forget it. I'm going to the enemy's camp. That's what David's doing. I've had it. Forget Israel. I'm going over there. At least over there, And then he begins to start looking at things. Well, at least over there I can live in peace. I don't have Saul chasing me. At least I can just get, it'll be better if I live over there. In fact, he says to himself, there's nothing better for me that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. Listen, self, it's the best thing for me. Come on, David, let's just go. It's the best thing for you. Listen, moving to the enemy's camp is never the best thing for you. But David convinces himself it is. In other words, he's telling himself this. He says, there's nothing good for me among the people of God any longer. Nothing good for me here. The promises of God just, they don't seem to be possible. I'm just going to let go of being that king thing. Someday I'll be king. I'm just going to let that go. And I'm going to go join the enemies of the people of God. I'm going to cross the line. I'm going to go move in with the enemies of the people of God. At least there, maybe this is his thoughts, at least there I can quit, I can quit wandering, wandering in this wilderness. At least I can get a house. Maybe I can settle down. Maybe I raise my families, do my thing. i got these 600 men. Maybe I can get a little town and name it after myself or something. Maybe at least there I can have some peace and quiet. At least there it would make my life so much better. It would be so much better if I was just over there. I wouldn't live the way that I'm living right now. You ever felt that way in your trial? I have. How long of a trial have you endured? David's going on... 12 plus years here and I could understand his heart because I've been there, I understand but he's making a mistake he's not remembering what God's done for him he's not remembering God's prior deliverances he's not praising God as he did in the Psalms he's not meditating on the word of God instead he's listening to the counsel coming from himself and he himself is discouraged he himself is what we would call hopeless he doesn't have any hope that's not, the good, that's not the time that you want to counsel yourself. You don't want to listen to your own counsel. He's discouraged in looking at his present situation. He's, he's, he's got long suffering. He wants it to change right now because he can't take it anymore. He's counseling himself rather than seeking counsel from God. Rather than seeking counsel from a godly person, someone who's going to give him good biblical counsel. Didn't God call him to Judah in the first place? God moved him there. God never told him to leave that place. But he's, his time frame on Judah is up. I can't take it anymore, God. I've had enough. I'm moving on. Thanks for the promise of being king. I just don't see it happening right now. That's essentially his heart. I just can't imagine. It's, taken, I just, it's just impossible, Lord. Listen, here's what I want us to know from this. What you say to yourself in your heart has tremendous power To shape the way that you act, the way that you think, and what you believe. Listen carefully. The things you say to yourself, the way that you counsel yourself, the way that you talk to yourself, whether it be out loud or in your mind. If you talk out loud, we will see me afterwards. If you answer yourself, no, I'm just kidding. In all seriousness, what we tell ourselves really matters. Matters a big, big deal. You see, I can speak words of discouragement to myself, and I'll find myself what? discouraged. I can speak words of hope to myself and I'll find myself with hope. What I say is important. And please don't, under, please don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about the, the power of positive confession. I'm not talking about, you know, the name it, claim it, you know, if you want to be wealthy, say you're wealthy. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. That, that's all nonsense, okay? But when it comes to the promises of God, when it comes to the word of God, the things that I tell myself matter. The way that I counsel myself makes a difference. So let me ask you how are you counseling yourself? What do you say to yourself? What kind of words of encouragement do you say to yourself? I'm, do you say, I'm tired of this situation? I can't take it anymore. I can't handle it anymore. I just want out. I really wish God would do something. I just, I've just, i had it. I want to throw in the towel. I want to cross over to the enemy. might as well just go over to the enemy's side. How far along are you in, in being discouraged or being without hope? Or are you seeking and obeying the counsel of the Lord in a trial? Are you seeking and obeying the biblical counsel given to you by friends? Are you focusing, or are you focusing on the seemingly impossible situation before you? Remember, with God, all things are possible. But oftentimes in our lives, we look at the situation around us and we think, well, there's just nothing else that can be done. There's nothing else that can be done. And you might even find yourself thinking, well, God doesn't even care about me. God does, God, God's for, forgot about me. He doesn't care about me. Matter of fact, I don't even God, are you even there anymore? If you've been there, you know that's a time to repent. Because what you're accusing of God is not being there for you. You're accusing God of not caring for you. You're accusing God of of you're accusing the God who who sent his son to die for you is not caring for you in this momentary trial in life. Besides, what's 12 years? What's 13 years? What's 15 years? What's 20 years in the in the frame with eternity? It's nothing at all, right? It's just a short period of time. Listen to it this way. The sermons that will have the greatest impact on your life are the ones that you preach to yourself. Think about that. The things that you tell yourself are what's going to impact your life greater than what I say. You see, because I stand up here tonight and I can say these things to you and it's gonna, it can go in one ear and out the other. You can come to church, praise, worship here, Bible study, and go on out of here. But the sermons that you tell yourself, the encouragement that you give yourself, the promises of God that you pour into your heart, that's what's going to impact your life. As a matter of fact, Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, I remember on one occasion to my shame being sad and doubtful of heart. And a kind friend took out a piece of paper and he read to me a short extract from a discourse upon faith. I very soon detected the author of the extract... That my friend was reading to me was from my very own sermons. Without saying a word, he just left it to my own conscience, for he had convicted me of committing the very fault against which I had so earnestly declaimed. In other words, Charles Spurgeon said, "Listen, I was down one day. I was really doubting. I was. I was just down. I was out. Of, I was. I was out. I was doubting faith. I just. I just wasn't. Didn't have it. Didn't feel it. A friend of mine came over, and he took a piece of paper out. And he started reading from it, and partway through, I realized." hey, that's my sermon. I wrote that. I preached that. And now my friend, without saying a word, laid it on the table and said, now, I, this is, these are my words added. Now will you live that? You see, he was convicted because he needed to hear the words that he was saying to others. He needed to be, preach them to himself. They needed to be heard by himself. Now, I want to show you something. I want you to see what's driving David to the enemy's camp because I think this is important. What is it that's driving David to leave the people of God and go reside with the enemy? Why why would he do such a thing? It wasn't really King Saul, was it? If King Saul had come to David and said, David, you know, listen, this place is not big enough for the both of us. Why don't you just head on over to the enemy's camp and move in with the Philistines? What would David have said? No way. You're crazy. Let's battle it out like men and the winner stays and, you know, he would have something like that to say. He was a warrior. He wasn't that. King Saul, nobody, no person could drive him to the enemy's camp. But what could drive him and what is driving him is this, discouragement and despair. Despair means loss of hope. Discouragement and loss of hope is literally driving him to leave the people of God, abandon the promises of God to go reside with the enemy. You ever been there? You ever been so discouraged, so lost? There's just, I'm hopeless. I just don't see where this is leading. I just don't know where it's going to go. I just, I just don't even know if I want to continue anymore. That will drive you to the enemy's camp. But why did he become discouraged? Why did he lose hope? A couple of reasons I can suggest you. One is probably the time in the trial. He did pretty good. 12 years. 12 plus years. But the time in the trial is long. Living out in the wilderness. You ever go camping? You live out in the wilderness for a few days. How is it? That's kind of fun when you go camping for a few days. 12 years? 13 years? Your wives following you around? You know what they're saying? When are we going to settle down? Can't we get a place? They, they, they got the same nesting instincts that women have today. They're wondering where we're we going to raise our family? Where are we going to raise our kids? You know they're wondering that, and we just keep going from cave to cave, place to place. We're on the run all the time. David also got to this place. He also came to this place of being discouraged and hopeless because he lost sight of the promise of God the promise of God was no longer the thing that was brightest in his life it became dim it became covered by the circumstance of his life by the time of the trial by the circumstance the promise of God was just forgotten about it just it just too much time had passed and that wasn't his focus anymore what about you has God ever given you a promise and then it takes time you know, a lot of times God will tell us he's going to do something in our lives and some, we're going to become something. He's going to, he's going to give us something. Whatever the promise of God is, can I just encourage you not to lose sight of it? Not to lose, don't, for, don't, don't let the, the, the circumstance overshadow it because it's still, if it's a promise from God, it's going to come true. It has to. He can't lie. Number three, how did he get this way? How did he become so discouraged? How did he lose hope? He began to counsel himself rather than seeking counsel from God. Don't counsel yourself unless you're in the word of God, because you can talk yourself into or out of anything. When it comes to justification and rationalization, boy, we've got it down. We can rationalize and justify anything. We can make anything work. You know why that is? Because you'll always agree with yourself. If I'm talking to myself and I'm counseling myself, I'm always going to agree with what I'm saying. I'm not there to say, well, that's, I mean, think about that for a second. You know, Rob, you really shouldn't think that way. Yeah, you're right. I shouldn't think that way. Or did you hear this? Or did you hear that? Yeah, I heard that. Well, that was, they were kind of mean today. Did they say the right things? No, they didn't really say the right things because you're always going to be in agreement with yourself. You're never going to tell yourself, wait a minute. Maybe they did say the right things. You're always going to have this bantering back and forth where you just, you just, you agree with yourself. If you have a disagreement with yourself, there's a bigger problem. David gave up trusting in the Lord and instead, he left the land of promise, left the people of God, and he went looking for protection among the enemy. He went looking for protection among the Philistines. He met, he went, that, that's where he was going over. That, that was his rationalization. I'll be safer over there. At least Saul won't be chasing me over there. Yeah, but David, what about you being king? What about the promise that God's given to you? Hold on to it. No, I must have heard him wrong. Maybe it wasn't clear. Maybe it was just me and my mind. Maybe, maybe everybody's forgotten about that by now. I'm, I'm going to go look for protection. I'm going to go look for safety. It's much safer with the enemy. And that's what he does. Look at verse two. David arose and he went over with the six hundred men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives. Anaheim the Jezreelitess and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. David left the land of Israel, his 600 men and all their wives. So we can figure probably, what, a thousand people moving into the Philistine land, moving on over there. Each man with his own household. You know what's interesting? As David abandons the promise of God, he's taken his men with him. Think about that. As he, ta- as he abandons what God has promised him, as he, abandons God's, as he fails to be obedient to where God has him because he doesn't want to be there anymore because it's not comfortable for him. I don't like it here. I'm tired of running, so therefore I'm going to go make my own life. I'm going to make my own way of accomplishing what I want to accomplish. I'm just going to go join the Philistines and he brings 600 men, all their wives, his wives, their families. He brings them all across enemy lines with them. Remember that the decisions that you make will affect other people. And when you are in a place of discouragement and a place of despair, it's not a time to make a decision like that. That's not a time to make that choice. And the decisions I make and the decisions you make will affect the people around us. The decisions I make in life affect you guys. Do you know that? What if I was to do something really stupid and be disqualified from being a pastor? Well, what would happen? Well, God would take care of you all individually, but I couldn't be a pastor anymore. I couldn't, be, I couldn't, I couldn't lead the church. I couldn't lead the people here. Would that affect you guys? Sure it would. It would affect me too. It would affect my family. It would affect my children. It would affect lots of things. And David's making a really stupid decision that's affecting a lot of people, in my opinion. But you know what? He's been here before. He was there before, wasn't he? He was in this same area, the same talking to the same king before. But he had to, remember, he had to act like he was insane. He acted like he was a madman to get out of there. And he got away from him. But his goal, David's goal was what? I'm tired of being chased by King Saul. And he got what he wanted. His goal was accomplished. Saul sought him no more. Great job, David. But you know what the sad thing is? He didn't even know that Saul wasn't seeking him because he was on the enemy side. He didn't even know that Saul had given up on him. So in verse 5, he says to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Akish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. At the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. Almost a year and a half, David dwells, lives with his family and all his men across enemy lines. Now, why would they accept him? Why would the king, why would Kish even accept them? And I suggest to you two reasons. Number one, they shared a common enemy. Who was it? Saul. When David was there the first time, he didn't think that he could trust David. But by now, enough time has passed that everybody knows that Saul's chasing David around the wilderness. There's no secret. There goes Saul's army again. They're over here. They're over there. They're watching them move all back and forth. What are they doing? They're looking for King David, or not King David. They're looking for David. Everybody knows he's chasing him around. So, so I can imagine that Kish goes, great, we got a common enemy in Saul. You don't like Saul? We don't like Saul. We know he's chasing you. Fine, team up with us. But the second reason I think he, the reason he accepted him is, number, is number two is he's bringing with him 600 men. David's got quite a track record when it comes to war, doesn't it? The king of Israel is trying to kill you. You have, you have 600 well-trained men by David. I, I can put those men to work. If you're willing to fight with me, we have a common enemy. You have some, you have some men to fight with us. Doesn't it make you scratch your head and say, David, what are you doing? what are you doing? You're, you're going to the enemy side, which means that you might actually have to fight against Israel someday. You might have to do battle against King Saul. Could, could, could it get any worse for David? David, it's, I really think you're making a mistake crossing over to the Philistines. Could it, could it really get any worse? You bet it can. Look at verse 8. David and his men went up and they raided the Gersherites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For those nations were inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Akish. David is raiding the land. Now, look what it is. The word for raid, the Hebrew word for raided, comes from the verb to strip or to take away. It means literally to, the idea is, is taking stuff off of dead people, to remove stuff, removing things from people that are died. David attacks these villages or encampments, and then he kills the people and he takes everything that belonged to them. This is the man of God. He's essentially become a bandit or a robber. He's turned into this person that he's just attacking. That's how he's supporting himself. Him and his 600 men is are attacking everybody anybody near them they go after they they shut down their village they kill everybody and they take all their stuff kind of makes you scratch your head say i thought this was a man after god's own heart we'll get there there's an end to this but i want you to notice something he hasn't totally turned against god and his people for now he only he's only attacking the enemies of israel you see the people that he's attacking aren't the israelites they're Area, they're, they're people who would be the enemies of Israel. He's attacking smaller villages and things like that. It probably gave David some comfort, some rationalization there, is to think, well I'm not hurting my people, the people of God. I'm just attacking the people that would come against the people of God. That, that's kind of the mentality that I think that he had there. It's a little bit of consolation, you know. I'm not as bad as I could be. There is there's some good in me. I'm helping out Israel by attacking their enemies. And even though, even though he attacks the enemies of Israel, David was nothing more than an armed robber and a murderer. He wasn't doing this for God. God hadn't called him to do this. This was the blood that was on his hands. These were the innocent lives that he was taking. These people weren't coming against Israel. God, David was fighting from the Philistine perspective. He killed all the people in the villages, took the spoil, and did it without the approval or the guidance of God. If you'll notice, God is not mentioned anywhere in chapter 27 doesn't exist. He doesn't talk about him. David's doing what David wants to do. He's had it with his situation. He's going to change it. And this is where he finds himself. Living in an enemy camp, attacking people, killing people, and stealing from them. He's fighting wars for profit instead of fighting for the Lord. That's what he's doing. Look at verse 10. Then Achish would say, where have you made a raid today? Where have you been today, David? David would say against the southern area of Judah or against the southern area of the Jeharmalites, or against the southern area of the Kenites, David would, save, David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. And thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Kish believed David, saying, he has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever." Do you see what's going on? David's going out. He's doing these raids and these attacks. But he's not doing it against Israel. But he's telling Akish that he's attacking the nation Israel. And Akish figures, you know what? If he's attacking his own people, then I've got him. I own him. Because they're not going to want anything to do with him. But David's plan is when I attack a city or a town or a village, I'll just kill everybody. That way there's nobody to say who it was. There's nobody left alive to come tell on what I'm doing. There's nobody that can come tell Akish what's really going on. You see, some people think that at this point that this is, a, this is God's plan, to send David into enemy camp to begin destroying these enemies of Israel. I completely disagree with that. I think David's gotten there on his own. Nowhere do we read that God sent him there. I think David's fed up with his trial. I think he's had it, and now he's taken matters into his own hands. Listen, if God's given you a promise, you hold on to it. You don't give up. Don't let time take away the promise that God's given you. Don't let the circumstance or the situation or the seemingly impossible impossibility of the fulfillment of the promise don't let that discourage you from holding on to that promise don't let it do it david is here and we what does he do he lies now he's lying to akish why well he's covering for himself you know he's really helping the nation of israel he can justify that right no he's flat out lying he kills everyone he's not defending god's people he's become a robber and a murderer you know It's a little bit later on in David's life where he will again murder with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. David will have an affair with Bathsheba and in an event to cover up the affair he will have his have her husband Uriah murdered. You wonder where does that stuff come from? Take note if I don't deal with my sin it will come back worse than it did than it was. You see how did david get to that point when you st- when we get a little farther along we'll study bathsheba and uriah and say, how did he get there how how is he capable of that look what he's doing here he's walked away from the promise of god he's walked away it's 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 amazing how how's how's this going to happen what's going to take place how, how wait a minute it even makes you wonder god is there even anything you can do about this i mean we know that you promised him to be king of israel those of us who know the bible know he becomes king of israel so we look at this situation and go How is this going to play out? What's going to happen? Look at the next 28, chapter 28, just the first couple of verses there. Now, it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Akish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle you and your men. So David said to Akish, surely you know what your servant can do. And Akish said to David, therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Do you see how far it's gone? David is in, now aligning with the Philistines to do battle against Israel. How are you going to get out of this? Better yet, how's God ever going to make you king of Israel once you do battle with the Israelites and you're on the wrong side? Well, chapter 29 will tell us that, but we're not going to make it there tonight because we have to do chapter 28 first next week. But if you want to read ahead and you want to figure out how God's going to solve this problem, it's in chapter 29. But I want to share a few more things with you that I think are important. I want to share a couple lessons that I think we need to learn from here. This is a short chapter, but I think there's some valuable lessons. Number one, I love the honesty of the Bible. I love the way that it tells us honestly David's mistakes. I love the way that it shows us his failures. Because if I can believe his failures, then I can certainly believe his successes. It gives us a good picture of who he is. It shows us who he is clearly. Number two, it shows us that even the best men are only still men. Even the best. David, a man after God's own car. We're watching him. You just scratch it and go, David, what are you doing? But he's still a man. He's still a man. David was a godly man. He was a godly man. And look where, look where he's at. It tells us that even godly men are subject to failure. Even godly men can make mistakes. It also shows us that God is being patient with David, doesn't it? What would you have done if you were God? What if David, you'd given him this promise, yeah, he's whining to you in the wilderness, yeah, he wants out and a trial, and, you know, well, how would you handle David if you were God? The moment he defected and went over to the Philistines, would you have taken it back? Well, fine. I'll just put you in the battle and get you wiped out and we'll take care of that and we'll get another, another king over Israel. That's not what God does. We're going to see that's not David will become the king over Israel. It shows God's patience, shows his long suffering with us, and it also shows his mercy. It shows his mercy with us. Remember, David had showed tremendous mercy to King Saul, hadn't he? He had an opportunity to kill Saul a couple times. But each time he showed mercy. And then we see God's mercy coming back to David. That which he's using on other people is now coming back to him. But it leaves us with a question. leaves us with a question. Wait a minute, Rob. I thought you said David was a man after God's own heart. I thought you said he was becoming a man after God's own heart. I thought he was a godly man. I thought he was a man who sought the Lord Is this the kind of thing that a man after God's own heart would do? Killing people, destroying villages, not in the name of God, but in the name of prophet? And then lying to the other king? Is this something that a man after God's own heart should do? No. Well, then is is David still a man after God's own heart? Yes, he still is. Would a man after God's own heart sin like this? Maybe, at times. Here's the problem. Sometimes we expect a man after God's own heart like David, when we look at him, what we expect is perfection. What we expect is perfection. Sometimes you expect that in your own life. As you follow the Lord, as you look at your life, you go, I I expect perfection. I look at other people and I want to hold them to a standard of perfection. This is where I want to hold them, up here, up high, perfection. You know, Jesus is the only example of a perfect man that ever lived. Every other man whether it be David, whether it be a pastor, whoever, every other man is sinful. Every other man is sinful. No matter how high of a pedestal you put them on, they still will be sinners. And the higher you put them up, the farther they're going to fall. We don't look to men for our example. We look to Christ for our example. Is he still a man after God's own heart? Absolutely. And here's how. Because what we know about David, if you've read any of the Psalms that he's written, you know that he might not be a perfect man, but he's a repentant man. You see, I can't model perfection. You can't model perfection for anybody, but you can model repentance. When you make a mistake, when you fall, what do you do? Do you cover it up? When you wrong somebody, are you willing to go to them and say, Hey, I've wronged you. Forgive me. I can model repentance. I can't model for I can't be an example of perfection to anybody. You neither can you. But when we blow it at work or around our friends, when we say things that we shouldn't say, when we do things, we have attitudes that we shouldn't have, are you willing to go be that model of repentance for somebody? Are you willing to do that? That's what makes that's what we have to give out as Christians. You see, Would you ever tell anybody like the Apostle Paul says, come live like me. Follow me as I follow Christ. Do exactly what I do. Live exactly the way that I do. Follow me exactly to the T. Or would you say, well, listen, I want you to do some of the things I do, but these other things, just we're going to leave those aside. Just forget those attitudes. Forget those things. Just just put those off to the side. You see, Jesus was the only man who walked on the earth, fully man, fully God, that said, that never sinned. He's the only example of perfection that we have. Now, before we close tonight, I want to remember these couple of things. The things that you say to yourself in your heart have tremendous power to shape the way that you act, the way that you think and, the way, and what you believe. I want you to seriously consider what am I saying to myself? How am I counseling myself? And if you're counseling yourself, uh, if, if you're using words that are hopeless, if you're using words of, you know, just of despair, if you're using words of discouragement, I want you to change the way you're counseling yourself. I want you to change it. I want you to start speaking words of, of hope to yourself, speaking words of light to yourself, speaking words of love to yourself, remembering the promise of God's. Remember his, his promises in his word. That's where we want to get our counsel from. That's where we want to go to, that's where we need to receive our uplifting. If I don't, if, if all I'm hearing is my own voice to myself, Where's that going to lead me? Hopeless and discouraged, just like David. I'm glad this chapter's in there. When I first started reading, I thought, wow, this is just so dumb. Why would you do such a thing? And then I realized, you know what, i do the same thing. I'm not too far off from him. I make those mistakes too. The other thing I want you to remember is the decisions that you make will affect other people in your life. When you make a bad decision, you bring people with you. You will bring people with you, whether you like it or not. There's no way to make a decision just and not have it not affect your family, your friends, your loved ones. When we're going to make bad decisions, we have to realize the impact that it has. You see, we'll counsel ourselves in bad decisions and we'll justify them and we'll we'll rationalize them and make them all make sense to us. But that's not really what we need. We need to look and say, is what I'm doing, where does it line up with the Word of God? I need to go back to the Word of God and say, Lord, where's my decision? Is this the right thing to do? Am I being obedient to you? Now let me just frame this one more way for you. David's walking in the will of God and life is hard. Life is hard. It's hard for him. He's discouraged. He's wandering in the desert for all these years. He's living in caves. His wife probably wants to settle down. He's got all these men. What are we going to do? Let's take over a city. We're powerful. We We don't have to live this way, David. He's got all these people. There's 600 of us. We can go take over a small city and set up our own kingdom. Let's just do it that way. And David gets frustrated and he gets tired of waiting on God. And he goes, I'm going to solve this problem myself. I'm going to the enemy. In your trial, in the time of despair, when you get that way, remember this section of scripture. Remember where it landed David. Now, the wonderful thing is that God's going to redeem him and that God's going to bring him back in a miraculous way. We'll see this in two weeks. Read ahead, I encourage you to find out how God does it because it's rather amazing. David, at this point, he's ready to go to battle. When it says in in chapter 28, verses one, now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle and your men. You know you're going with me, right, David? And David said to Achish, surely you know what your servant can do. What is he saying? I'm with you, let's go, let's do battle. But God's going to change all this in chapter 29. If I guess if I could say anything, and we'll close with this thought, really, really, and I mean this, this is important. The most important thing in this passage is be careful what you're saying to yourself because it will shape the way that you think, the way that you act, and what you believe. Make sure you're counseling yourself from the word of God with the promises of God and the hope of God. And you won't find yourself discouraged or dismayed. You will be lifted up because the promises of God are true and they will come true thank you for your word Lord I just thank you for this time for this message tonight Lord that you show us in David his uh, his humanity where we know that he's a, a man after your own heart but we also see his imperfection where we see the sin and I, I thank you for revealing that to us because so often we can look at the guys or the men or women that God uses and we think that they're so much higher than us and we realize man they're not Lord you've been in the business of using ordinary people to do extraordinary things for a long time. And may we be ordinary people that are used by you. May you use us in, our, in, your, in your plan. May we walk in your ways. And Lord, may we give ourselves counsel from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.